Hello, my rebels. Today I look at a strange appointment made by Stephen Gilbo. He appoints Mohammed Hashem, a race hustler, to the Canadian Race Relations Foundation. What a weird choice. I'll take you through some of his history in case you don't know the name. Before I do, let me invite you to become a subscriber to Rebel News Plus. Just go to rebelnews.com and click the subscribe button. It's eight bucks a month or 80 bucks for the whole year. And you get the video version of the podcast, which we like to think is valuable because we got all the visuals. All right, here's today's podcast. Tonight, blackface Justin Trudeau appoints a race hustler to lead an anti-racism bureaucracy. Are you surprised? It's October 7th, and this is The Ezra Levant Show. Why should others go to jail Why? when you're a biggest carbon Thank consumer you. I know? There's 8,500 customers here, and you won't give them an answer. The only thing I have to say to the government about why I publish it is because it's my bloody right to do so. I saw this announcement yesterday from the Heritage Minister, Stephen Gilbo, that weird convicted eco-criminal that Trudeau appointed to cabinet. I, actually, I didn't see the tweet because I have been banned and blocked by Gilbo on Twitter. I cannot access his tweets. I'm not sure why. I'm a citizen who pays his salary. I'm a member of Canadian society against whom he has transgressed. That's what being convicted of a criminal offense means. You did a wrong to all of society. So why won't this little Trudeau criminal let me see what he says? I pay his salary. But that's the kind of guy Gilbo is. I mean, he says what he means, and he means to censor the internet. And he means to require licenses for people who have websites. Remember this? As far as the licensing is concerned, is if you're a distributor of content in Canada, and obviously, you know, if, if you're a, if, if you're a sm very small media organization, the requirement probably wouldn't be the same as if you're Facebook or, or Google. Um, uh, so the, 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 there would have to be some proportionality uh, uh, embedded into this. But we, we would ask that they have a license, yes. So yeah, Gilboa's longer-term plan is to have me shut down until he can achieve that, he'll just stop me from reading his pearls of wisdom on Twitter. Well, I found a way to read his tweet, and he said this. Today I announced the appointment of Mohammed Hashem as the new head of the Canadian Race Relations Foundation. With his experience in addressing systemic barriers and promoting inclusion, I am confident that he will carry out his mission brilliantly. <clears throat> well, as the historian uh, Robert Conquest taught us, the simplest way to explain the behavior of any bureaucratic organization is to assume that it's controlled by a cabal of its enemies. An example of that is the dairy cartel. They actually work to keep out dairy products, right, to drive up the price. Same thing with the taxi commissions. They work to keep out taxi competitors like Uber. So the Canadian Race Relations Foundation has just hired someone who is a full-time race hustler himself. Perfect fit for Justin Blackface Trudeau. I first heard of Mohammed Hashem when he jumped into action after the mass murder in Toronto a couple years back in Toronto's uh, Greek neighborhood called the Danforth. <clears throat> back then, a Muslim man named Faisal Hussein went on a shooting spree through the Danforth. He murdered two women 
an 18-year-old named Reese Fallon, and a 10-year-old girl named Ju Juliana Kozis, and he wounded a dozen more. The strangest part was when Hussein saw people who were visible minorities. <clears throat> he told them they could go without worry. He wasn't going to murder them. It was only white folks um, in that neighborhood, maybe Greeks or Christians, that he apparently wanted to kill. He drove halfway across the city to go there to do his shooting spree. Hussein said to a local Sikh businessman, he said to that man, um, you can go, I won't shoot you. And that man reported that to uh, Toronto Sun's Joe Warmington. Now, maybe a mass shooter has nothing to do with terrorism or race <coughs> or religion or politics. There are murderers of every religion and race doesn't mean that their crime had to do with their religion or their race. But that was a curious thing he told that Sikh guy, don't you think? Now, within moments of the shooting, a Muslim spokesman presented himself to the media on behalf of the family. He told a beautiful story written in perfect English. And it was immediately picked up by all the mainstream media, hungry for a counter-narrative to the curious facts that suggested terrorism. He uh, gave out this statement from the family. Here's some of the things it said. We are at a terrible loss for words, but we must speak out to express our deepest condolences to the families who are now suffering on account of our son's horrific actions, it said. <clears throat> our son had severe mental health challenges, struggling with psychosis and depression his entire life. The interventions of professionals are unsuccessful. Medications and therapy were unable to treat him. And it was signed, Hussein Family. Did they write that? Did they write that? It's doubtful, given how weak their command of English is. Did they even read it? And who in the Hussein family approved it, if anyone at all? Was any of that true? And why did all the media party run with it so quickly, so uniformly, without scrutiny? Uh, well, Anthony Fury uh, wrote this about it. Meet the spin doctor behind the Hussein family statement. It's a story in the Toronto Sun back then. Let me read a bit. The man who has presented himself as the point of contact for the family of Faisal Hussein is a professional activist who has reportedly committed himself to, quote, framing a new narrative of Muslims in Canada and creating a national political movement. Oh, <clears throat> so he's a spin doctor. So he's not a family friend. This is what he does professionally. Uh, he's an activist who saw a problem. Uh, let me quote. The uh, statement was provided by Mohammed Hashim, full-time organizer for the Toronto and New York Region Labor Council. Social media accounts belonging to Hashim show him heavily involved in supporting NDP candidates both federally and provincially in Ontario. He's also described as a driving force behind the National Council of Canadian Muslims. That's a Muslim Brotherhood-linked group. So here you go. Uh, the media was so relieved, it wasn't terrorism, just mental illness and psychosis, in fact. Blame society, blame the health system, blame Canada. Don't blame Faisal Hussein, definitely don't blame Islam. I mean, sure, ISIS claimed responsibility within days, but Trudeau's CBC state broadcaster uh, immediately said that wasn't true uh, because Hashim said it wasn't true. That was that. The story was buried, except much later we found out, you know, the mass shooting had some of the hallmarks of terrorism. CSIS very much thought it was of interest, and top secret, look at this story again by Anthony Fury in the Toronto Sun.
CSIS took an interest in Danforth shooting. New docs confirm top secret. Canada's National Intelligence Agency took an interest in the Danforth shooting for at least six months after the tragic event unfolded. New top secret documents obtained by the Toronto Sun confirmed for the first time. The heavily redacted documents show that CSIS produced their SITREP, a situation report, at 7 a.m. the morning after the July 22, 2018 shooting that left three dead, including the gunman Faisal Hussain and 13 others injured. So this is the news that came out after months, months after the shooting. Just one more fact about that mass shooting, and then I'll bring it back to Mohammed Hashem in a moment. I'm just reminding you about the mass shooting in the Danforth by Faisal Hussein and what it was really like. This is from a police document called an ITO, or Information to Obtain, as in this is what the police put together. They swear it's true. They go to a judge to obtain a search warrant. This is from the police document. While the media party was running with the, he was so sick excuse, here's what the police were saying. Uh, this is from interviews with the family that police had conducted. Uh, this is from his twin brother. Faisal was into guns when he was younger, but he has no idea how he would have obtained one, says a brother. And one more. About four years ago, he remembers Faisal visiting Pakistan with his father. Oh, really? Pakistan. Uh, Faisal Hussain's dad was also interviewed by the cops. Uh, his dad, quote, took Faisal to Islamabad, Pakistan, about two or three years ago to visit family. Faisal was happy on the trip and did not want to return because people left him alone there. So Faisal Hussain didn't like Canada, didn't want to come back to Canada, didn't like the people here, liked it better in Pakistan. His dad, quote, forces Faisal to attend Dur Islam Mosque as he does not go willingly. I wonder if that's true. We don't know. Um, I've, I've read this to you a, a year or so or two years ago, but I'm just refreshing your memory if you don't remember this document. Um, in the next line, Faisal didn't smile much uh, lately and only came out of his room to eat. That doesn't sound like psychosis to me. Sounds like he was brooding. But look at paragraph 33 in the information to obtain. This is quoting Faisal Hussain's mom. So the brother and the dad said, oh yeah, he went to Pakistan. They interviewed the mom separately and, quote, she advised the following about Faisal, has never left Canada. Really? So the brother and the father said, sure, he went with his dad to Pakistan. Didn't want to come back, loved it. But the mom said, no, 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 he's never left Canada, never gone to Pakistan. What? So he had guns and drugs and had been to Pakistan and hated the West and loved being in Pakistan and went to Pakistan, but his mother swears he had never been to Pakistan. He's a good boy. And nothing about psychosis in these interviews. But Mohammed Hashem had done his job well. He wrote the truth, good enough for the media party, good enough to call anyone who was worried about terrorism an Islamophobe, until it turned out that CSIS and the Toronto police were worried about terrorism themselves, because at least one of his parents were lying about things. He was into guns and drugs. The excuse in Hashem's fake letter was exposed, but that was so much after the letter had been published. Hashem did his job very well. Same thing with the hijab hoax. Remember that one? This young girl claimed that uh, she was attacked on the way to school by a Chinese man, apparently, who didn't say anything to her, apparently, but was carrying scissors, apparently, and cut her hijab without poking her, which is quite a feat. And no one saw it, and he came back again, and he didn't say anything, and no one saw it. Really? And not only did the school not lock down the school, the school board called a national press conference and put the 11-year-old girl on national TV. Would you do that? 
If an 11-year-old girl had really been attacked by a random person on the street who was still at large, would you identify the girl so the criminal uh, would know who she was? It's just so crazy. Oh, and, and the actual press conference itself, the brother joking around and laughing, who would believe that? Well, it was a hoax, as anyone could see. In that case, it only took police a few days to say the obvious. The girl lied, and her mom had magnified the lie, and the school board has magnified the lie, and to this day, Justin Trudeau, well, he tweeted about the hoax, and his tweets remain up to this day. Fake news, disinformation, but all part of Mohammed Hashem's disinformation campaign. Hashem loved it. Hashem loved it. He wrote, Having the police recognize this as a potential hate crime is a much greater act of deterrence and a signal that Islamophobia will not be tolerated, said Mohammed Hashem, a member of the United Alliance on Race Relations, or Urban Alliance on Race Relations. You bet he was all over that hoax. That's his style. Or remember when a Syrian migrant went full Antifa on an elderly lady? Remember that criminal? Well, that guy, Allah al-Sufi, was the son of Hazm al-Sufi, who had been, you know, some media celebrity of sorts. He was a Syrian migrant who'd done good. And it turns out his son is a young Antifa thug. So who do you call to fix this PR disaster? The fixer spinner, Mohammed Hashem. Um, the CBC loved it. Look at this. They didn't know who to call. That's how Trudeau's CBC praises Hashem. They basically, uh, the guy who comes in to turn terrorists into mentally ill people and turns Antifa thugs into victims of Islamophobia. The CBC loves this guy in a quote. Last fall, Hashem showed up the day Hassam al-Sufi, the owner of Toronto Syrian restaurant Sufis, announced that he was going to shutter his doors due to death threats and other hateful messages. The closure came after al-Sufi's son was involved in an incident outside of a Maxime Bernier event in Hamilton. Allah al-Sufi faced a number of charges, including two counts of intimidation, two counts of wearing a disguise with intent and causing a disturbance after he was arrested for allegedly blocking the path of an elderly woman with a walker. Hashem says the family had no idea what to do when the death threats came in because they arrived only a few years earlier. So he knows how to play the victim. Fake hijab hoax, turning the girl into a victim instead of the liar. Fake spin here, turning an Antifa thug into a victim, the media's happy to help. He doesn't just champion extremists, he's opposed to de-radicalizing actual terrorists. Look at this tweet. Hey Ralph Goodale, this is very important. Playing up de-radicalization only further marginalizes Muslims more. Now, I, I don't believe de-radicalization is a thing. Uh, just look at the recidivism rate of the terrorists released from Guantanamo Bay. It's not like this is an illness to be cured. It's a belief system, being a jihadist. It's, it's not like a rash. These people believe in the jihad and they won't disbelieve it just because some liberal social worker asks them to. Hashem didn't just uh, do defense for Muslim extremists. He, he doesn't really care for the Jews that much. Here he is defending an anti-Semitic liberal MP. Remember Samir Zuberi? Here's the deal. This is someone with very checkered history. Uh, B'nai B'rith describes him as having anti-Semitic, anti-Israel views. Certainly he has a checkered history. Um, for example, doubting that 
Osama bin Laden was the mastermind behind 9-11. Uh, during his days at Concordia University, he got the Jewish club there delisted. And there's been some other things. Oh, yes, he likes the idea of Sharia law being incorporated in Canada. Yeah, that guy. Well, Hashim is there, and he'll claim that such an anti-Semite and 9-11 supporter, excuser, is in fact just kosher, totally kosher. Aaron O'Toole had called out Zuberi's anti-Semitism and views on 9-11. And here's what Hashem wrote. It's funny how you call him an anti-Semite, but the most recent president of the Montreal Board of Rabbis, Rabbi Lisa Gushko, calls him a friend. Talk about using the Jewish community as political pawns to score cheap points. Shame on you. <laughs> Got it. He's flipping it around. He's good at that. And then there's just plain old telling the Jews to shut up. Jewish stalwarts, whatever those are. Maybe, maybe I'm one of them. There was this Jewish conference on anti-Semitism and Hashem knew who the bad guys were. It's really shocking how so many Jewish stalwarts could be involved with this. I get the need to expose and discuss Islamic extremists, but that's not the limit of expression within the conference. Many have crossed the line and conflated to impose negative values on all Muslims. So he doesn't like Israel much either, no surprise there. Did John Baird just say Canada wants the 67 borders with land swaps as the basis of a peace deal? Look, the guy is a political spin doctor. That's what he is. He does nothing to improve race relations. He does not heal rifts. He defends terrorists if he have to. He spins the media. He propagates lies about security threats of Islamic terrorists. He denounces Jews who are worried about terrorism. He even criticizes the liberals for what little they're doing about terrorists. This is the man Justin Trudeau and Stephen Gilbo just put in charge of a government bureaucracy with $26 million of assets. The crazy thing is the Race Relations Foundation was set up in part with running by Japanese Canadians, maybe the most peaceful people in the country. The purpose was to help learn the lessons of the Japanese internment. Imagine what those founders would think now with such a hustler and huckster running the show and spending their money. Race Relations Foundation? No. That Robert Conquest rule, that applies here. It's now a $26 million battering ram against race relations for accused terrorists and definitely against those stalwart Jews. Stay with us for more. Depending on how you measure, you could say that China is winning its asymmetrical war against the West. Economically, it seems resilient. It hasn't shut its, itself down permanently as much of the West has done. In fact, it's making money off the vestiges of the pandemic, selling us protective, uh, personal protective equipment. Uh, in terms of military expansionism, it continues full force. They've taken over Hong Kong, and the West has done but a peep. Now they're threatening war with India, high in the mountains. I'm not sure by what measure China could be said to be losing its war against the West. And in about a month, we'll see if, in fact, Joe Biden, whose family has deep ties to China economically, will be the victor. If so, if he beats Donald Trump, then I think it's fair to say China will have won the war. But what about the war for the hearts and minds of the West? 
according to a new international survey by the liberal but fair Pew Research Group. China has never been more hated ever. Joining us now via Skype from Winnipeg to talk about this is our friend Spencer Fernando. And if you're not following him at SpencerFernando.com, you're doing it wrong. Spencer, great to see you again. Good to see you. You know, I'm really nervous about uh, Trump's re-election for a number of reasons. China is really big one of those reasons because you couldn't see a starker contrast uh, between Trump and Biden on possibly any issue other than China. I mean, maybe on fracking, maybe on, I can't even think of anything where it's so, the contrast is so great as in on China. Would you agree with that? Yeah, I mean, Biden's tried to copy a lot of Trump's rhetoric lately, but if you look at what he was saying, when he was actually in power, he was very friendly to China. He said, oh, you know, China is not a competitor for the states, which is just absurd to say. Uh, he said, they're not bad folks, talking about Xi Jinping. So, yeah, I mean, it's it, he definitely seems much weaker on China than Trump has been. Uh, the only thing is, I mean, you know, people like Chuck Schumer in the states and some of the Democrats have been pretty tough on China for a while, so... I think it depends whether he gets his way on it or whether some of the people, if he wins, of course, uh, if some of the people uh, in the Democratic Party and in the U.S. power structure at large pressure him into being tougher on China. But, yeah, it would be definitely be a concern with him in power on the China issue. Now, Secretary of State Mike Pompeo has been on a real international campaign to build a coalition against China. And that coalition, he wants it to include um, people rejecting Huawei the Chinese telecom giant that wants to build the 5G internet backbone in the West. And Canada is still wobbling on that. Uh, other countries are taking a harder line. I don't know if that momentum will continue if Pompeo is replaced. But what's interesting to me in this Pew study, I'd like to just show some of the different countries, is just how deeply public opinion has turned against China. In Australia, the number of Australians who are hostile towards China has doubled from 40% to 81%. In the United Kingdom, it's gone up four times from 16% to 74%. I'm just looking at the stats right here. In the Netherlands, it's more than doubled from 34 to 73%. And I have to say, Canadians are pretty vigorous on that too, as you know. Um, just a few years ago, only 27% of Canadians were hostile or critical or worried about China. Now that number is 73%. Um, I wonder if the grassroots world opposition to China means anything, though, if the leaders, uh, business leaders, tech leaders, military leaders continue to sell out. Yeah, well, that's the big question. It's going to be an election issue in a lot of places, including here in Canada. If you look at Aaron O'Toole, He's taken a tougher stance on China than any leader, uh, big political leader we've seen in Canada, possibly ever, but at least for some time. So it'll be interesting to see how Canadians react to that. I mean, Trudeau, there have been a few articles talking about how the liberals are now, they're going to try to shift towards a somewhat tougher position on China. Maybe they're looking at the polls, but there's things they could be doing that they're still not doing. I mean, they haven't banned Huawei. That'd be easy to do. Uh, they're not taking any steps to reduce uh, the, you know, many of our universities are highly reliant on foreign students from China, and they haven't done anything to reduce that reliance, you know, uh, saying we're not going to have any more foreign students from China coming in. They haven't done that. Uh, the Vancouver housing market is being totally distorted by Chinese billionaires buying up a lot of the property. So Canadian citizens themselves 
can't even live in some of our own cities, can't even afford to live there. So they're not doing anything about that either. So there's some things they could be doing to show some resolve and strength, and they keep failing to do it. Yeah. You know, I, I think Trump had said that no members of the Communist Party will be allowed to immigrate to the United States. It's sort of crazy that that isn't the law right now. I mean, after uh, the Second World War, there was a denazification program, and anyone who had been associated with the Nazi party, I'm not talking about just your common soldier in the Wehrmacht, I'm talking any Nazi. They had to go through a de-radicalization, they had to, some of them were in, interned. I mean, you couldn't come to America if you were a Nazi. Um, I'm not exactly equating the Communist Party with the Nazi Party, but there are some similarities. Uh, authoritarian, fascist, uh, concentration camps of millions of Uyghurs, um, a surveillance society, a belligerent against the West. I think there are some analogies. It's crazy to me. And here in Canada, not only do we allow communists to become citizens, as in members of the Communist Party, we allow the sons and daughters of rich Communist Party cronies to fill up our universities, as you mentioned. Yeah, it's interesting. I mean, no one knows where history is going to go. But if you look at, you know, Germany before World War Two, you know, say, let's say 1935, 1934, and then China now, there are some very disturbing similarities. I mean, China is in many ways uh, an authoritarian uh, ethno state, which, again, is something that doesn't get mentioned, right? You see all the elites here saying, Canada must accept record immigration levels or else we're all racist. You know, if anyone wants to even reduce to basically, well, it'd still be a record. It's, oh, any reduction at all, totally racist, unless it's in Quebec, of course. And it's okay. But then you have China saying, you know, only a certain amount of people, only a certain group of people are allowed to be citizens. It's based, based really on ethnicity. Uh, they're trying to, they're doing an actual cultural genocide against the Uyghurs. And, you know, many people seem to not care about that. So it's interesting, you know, we're supposed to accept all these things from China, but if we do anything in our own country, oh, it's totally unacceptable. But, you know, all the people said never again, and oh, they're fighting fascism, and we're not going to let authoritarianism happen ever again. You know, they seem to be uh, willing to turn a blind eye to China, I guess, if there's some profit or power in it for themselves. So I think most Canadians are against that. But as you say, the question is, will, will the people in charge actually do anything about it? Yeah. I mean, I look at the NBA, the National Basketball Association, obsessed with China because it's such an important part of their commercial success. I mean, you get an endorsement in China uh, as a player, you're an extra zero richer, you're the league, you're an extra two zeros richer. So to watch how they have silenced any criticism of China and any support for Hong Kong, it's actually far more creepy to me to watch the NBA enforce Chinese propaganda than anything a government is doing. And that's the same in Hollywood. I mean, we just saw the Disney film Mulan filmed in China. In their credits, the closing credits, they literally give a shout out to the Xinjiang secret police, the people who are running the Uyghur concentration camps. I mean, it's bad enough that that's where they filmed it. But for them to say, hey, you guys are great. Thanks, coppers. I mean, that's, and in the end, that still didn't please the Chinese dictatorship. They, they panned that Mulan film. But to watch mighty Disney and mighty professional sports, and you can't, how can you just say I'm boycotting Disney? Try doing that if you've got kids. How can you say I'm boycotting all professional sports leagues? That's just impossible. I think the real problems are the, the power of uh, commerce corrupting America and Canada. I think that's actually a bigger problem than, than the politicians.
Yeah, I agree. I mean, you saw even uh, with the the new Top Gun movie, uh, they made a little sneaky change there where, you know, Tom Cruise's jacket originally had, I think, the Taiwanese flag on the back, and they changed it to something a little more generic, right? So that's it's subtle, but that tells you what they're trying to do. Um, but, yeah, I think the issue with commerce, I mean, I think it's also an issue with the strength of civilizations. I mean, say what you want about China's government. It's obviously a big problem. But civilizationally, you know, they have a pretty strong sense of themselves. And in the West, that's been totally erased. There's people trying to... But they erase it right now with all this, uh, you know, the West is nothing but evil. We need to tear down all our statues. Any time in history there's been a competition between a confident civilization and one that's doubting doubting themselves, the confident one always wins. And so I think in the West we're kind of tearing apart all our values, tearing apart our history, fighting internally. And, you know, it's you take away, you know, people's belief, you take away people's uh, faith in themselves and their own country, and then you're left with just, oh, just make money, just, you know, get richer. Uh, go buy some nice stuff, and then China's going to win that battle every time. So I think the fight against China is not just it's about opposing them. It's about being strong within our own country, and, yeah, and that's that sucks. It's not really happening. It's been more than a dozen years since I was in China, uh, but there are Mao statues everywhere. He's still on their currency. Um, they don't say he's 100% right. I think they have some saying he was 80% right, or they have some weird math like mm. that. But in no way... Are they erasing him from their history? And that Chinese nationalism is absolutely what's fueling things. It's, it's, a, it's a form, yeah, you call it ethnic nationalism. I think that's right. Well, Spencer, I'm glad you're keeping up the fight on this issue. Do you think that the Canadian media are starting to turn? I saw the other day the Globe and Mail published a big infomercial from, uh, I think it was called the People's Daily, just this huge section called China Watch, which makes it sound like it's anti-China. It's, it was written by the Chinese embassy, really. Now, it was marked as an ad, but it sure was persuasive, if you were to believe it. Um, on the other hand, the Globe and Mail does actually some pretty good journalism on China. Where do you think the Canadian media are? Are there any people in the media still totally in love with communist China? Uh, there might be a few, but I think they're starting to get the message, uh, some of them at least. I mean, I think Sam Cooper for Global News uh, did a good article about there's been some uh, disturbing gang activity, uh, gangs linked to uh, communist China and politicians there. So some journalists get it. You know, there's, there's still even in the mainstream media some journalists with credibility, but the problem is they're few and far between. And uh, their owners often just want to make profits. So I think it's going to be a big battle for the soul of journalism in the country between China trying to co-opt people. They've got lots of subtle ways of doing it, too. It's not just straight up. They're going to yeah. go and necessarily threaten somebody or give them money directly. They've got lots of subtle ways, and we'll see if uh, people have the ability to resist. The one thing that does concern me about Canadians sometimes, though, is, you know, there's this, I call it the, the cult of niceness, right? As people think, oh, Canadians, we have to be nice all the time. You know, there's, there's a difference between being nice and being good. You can be good, and you don't always have to be nice. Sometimes you have to be tough, even brutal once in a while. But Canadians often think, oh, we'll just roll over for everybody. We'll just be nice. And, you know, if, if we do that and we don't change the attitude, you know, China's just going to look at us and say, man, this is going to be easy. So I think we have to smarten up. Yeah. Wise words. Well, it's great to have you back on the show. Um, tell me what you're working on. What should we keep a, an eye peeled? What kind of things should we look forward to at SpencerFernando.com? Well, I'll be writing more, I think, about what the liberals are doing to the economy, obviously the massive spending and uh, debt they're racking up. Uh, the NDP really not even an opposition party anymore. It's just a weak kind of version of the liberals that's propping them up. So that might create an opportunity for the Green Party. But uh, we'll see. I mean, Jagmeet Singh is even used about keeping the liberals in power for the rest of their term. So 
nobody voted for that. Nobody was told that was what's going to happen. And now it seems like that's what's going on. So I don't think people are too pleased about that. Well, listen, it's great to have you again on the show, as I mentioned. And folks, uh, I've said this before about other friends, like our friends at True North, Candace Malcolm and uh, Andrew Lawton. There are so few independent journalists in this country. Spencer Fernando is one of them. I, I understand you're a member of the Independent Press Gallery. Am I right on that? That's right. And, I, and, and we are too. And I understand there's about 50 members of the Independent Press Gallery, which I found encouraging. So mm -hmm. I'd like to encourage our viewers to go over to spencerfernando.com and sign up because there are so few of us independent voices that don't take government dough. I think each of us, frankly, has an obligation to support those like Spencer who are willing to take a stand. We're, we're thrilled to have you here and keep up the great work on your own website. I appreciate it. Take care. All right. You take care, too. There you have it, spencerfernando.com. Stay with us for more. Hey, welcome back. Uh, Corey Newcomb writes, Hate to say it, but I agree with McKenna on this one. I've eaten dogs, so I can't criticize her for that. When in Rome, the other stuff, distasteful to Westerners for sure, but uh, I don't think McKenna had much potential to put a stop to that stuff, being a foreigner in a strange land. They didn't exploit the situations in trying to make an interesting TV show, but is she responsible for what happened? No, I don't think so. Still don't like her politics, but her role in the TV show doesn't really affect my opinion of her. Well, listen, I appreciate you taking that point of view. I'm glad you shared that with me. I, um, in my noontime show today, I mentioned when I went to China a dozen years ago, I sort of became a vegetarian because there were certain things I didn't want to eat. The only place I really ate anything I saw was in Xinjiang because uh, I sort of knew, okay, the Muslim province, there's certain things they're not eating there or whatever. I think when you travel, you have to bend the knee to, to local customs to a degree. But really, I want to, I mean, let's put aside the marriage. Maybe it was just an arranged marriage and not an auction or human trafficking. And let's say eating dog, well, I mean, I ate rabbit stew once on a minute. But what about going to an illegal cockfight and putting money in the fund to bribe the local police? Is that just going with local customs? Is that an amoral act? I'm going to disagree with you on that one. Healthy Skeptic writes, The t-shirt looks like a winner, but seriously, Catherine McKenna will never answer. For these hideous episodes, liberals are simply above it all. See, that's a test I sometimes use. If this had been, I don't know, a senior MP in Aaron O'Toole's conservative party, I don't know, Pierre Polyev, had gone with a bunch of buddies to Indonesia for 60 days, eaten dog food, all right, maybe it wouldn't be a big deal, went to an arranged marriage with an auction of the bride, eh, seems like we need more info there, but you went to a cockfight, you enjoyed it, you bet on it, and you paid money to bribe a cop, nah, I don't think the CBC would ignore that, do you? On my interview with Joel Pollack, Canadian civilian writes, Disagreement and words of dissent were turned into hate speech by these fools. Welcome to the new world order. Well, we're in tough times. I say in 30 days we'll know a great deal about the future of the West. If Donald Trump wins, I think it'll save America from a lot of things. It'll save America from an ascendant China. It'll save America from anarchy and riot on the streets. 
I think it'll save America from the increasing identity politics divisions, and I think the economy will be stronger too. I am terrified if Biden wins. Obviously, he won't be president in fact. He'll simply be president in name. And the people behind him, well, they're the ones that really terrify me. In Canada, you know, electing Aaron O'Toole or electing Justin Trudeau, that'll have a difference of outcome, but neither will affect our outcome more than having Trump or Biden in the White House. I believe the effects on the world will be so profound, the difference between those two presidents, those two potential presidents, will be so profound that it will actually matter more to Canadians than our own federal election. What do you think of that? That's our show for today. Until tomorrow, on behalf of all of us here at Rebel World Headquarters, to you at home, good night, and keep fighting for freedom. <laughs>